Thank you once again. Welcome back to Oasis Baptist Church. I don't know about you, but that worship set, if that doesn't get you motivated and on fire, you need to do a pulse check, make sure you're with us. And so um, thank you for the praise team and everyone just leading us in that spirit of worship. Uh, This morning, we're going to finish up Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 is where we've been uh, for the last two weeks. And so I've had the honor of the last three weeks to fill in for Pastor Aaron uh, when it comes to this chapter. We're here in the last two weeks, we looked specifically uh, through the first 10 verses. And in those 10 verses, Paul laid out to Titus uh, how to instruct several different people groups within the churches of Crete. And we can look at that churches, the churches there, we can look at our church today and relate in a lot of similar ways. It started off at the beginning of chapter 2 with a reminder uh, of chapter 1, where it was a call to return to and maintain pure and sound doctrine, and then proceeded to Titus being instructed on how to instruct aged men, aged women, young women, young men, and servants on how to behave. Now, having said that, if you are a parent, whether you have children in the home right now, whether your children are out of the home, or whether you're watching today on live stream and your children are running around right now in the living room, the next um, conversation is going to sound very relatable, possibly somewhat familiar. Um, Have you ever sat down with your child or even a younger adult, whatever it may be, and you intentionally with all your focus and all your heart teach them how to behave in certain situations. I'll pause right here. When I grew up, my father used to say to me in public, he said, when I, this is what my dad would say, he said, son, when I would grow up, my dad would always say this, children are to be seen, not heard. And so that kind of filtered down around into my upbringing. But even, so we're, you, you pour in your heart and you teach your children some certain things like that. Now you pour it out, you give the reasons, why behavior should look this way. But then after all that, you get a one-word retort. That's a one-word question. It's a simple question, but it's often overused by our lovely children over and over and over again. And that is the question of why? Why? I have a five-year-old and a two-year-old. My two-year-old hasn't picked up the concept of why. My five-year-old knows it fluently, like it's a second language. Um, so don't lose me just yet. Now, in these next few verses, verses 11 through 15, the, wor- the verse actually starts off with the word, verse 11 starts off with the word for. So these next several verses will tie into the last 10 verses that we spoke over the last two weeks. Specifically, these, this section of verses to me is like, it gets me excited because I'm looking at it like, these five verses here are not so much just the main idea of this chapter, but it's also possibly the main driving force behind this book. Because if you remember, Titus was dealing with churches in Crete, like that of the Galatian church, where a false doctrine came in, behavior wasn't where it needed to be, and Paul was instructing Titus on how to, to train, how to lead by example, but how to specifically teach behavioral change. But in these five verses, why did Paul just give this exhausting list to Titus on all these different behaviors? Why? What is the answer? Why did this happen? So today, parents... Um, Whether you have children in the home, whether they're running around right now in the living room, or whether they're out of the home, I'm going to break some life-shattering like news for you, okay? You want to know the answer to why? So when your child asks why, you know what the answer is? It's the same answer we're going to see in these next five verses. So it can help in the home, it can help in the church, 
but it can help in understanding why Paul laid out to Titus all this uh, behavioral change. And the answer to the why question, which is a simple one-word question, is a simple one-word answer. That answer is love. Love is the answer to why. What is that reason? What is that question? The simple word is love. Love should be the singest, excuse me, that's not even a word, singest. Uh, Love should be the single biggest motivating factor in our lives. Title today's message is Motivated by Love. Motivated by Love. So if we're motivated by love, why are we even here? Why do we exist? What's our mission? Over the last several months, last several years since coming on staff here at Oasis, one of the great attributes of being on staff here is the intentionality of reading books together as a staff uh, to sharpen us, to be better leaders, or in my case, learn books on leadership so I can remove all the negative leadership qualities that I have. Um, One of the books I've been reading is called One Thing, and it focuses on what's the one thing, the one statement, the one reason for your existence in your calling, in your ministry, in your vocation, what have you. And so when it comes to this chapter, too, as it wraps up, I, a couple of weeks ago I talked about how sometimes chapter divisions are just kind of in an awkward position. Um, the end of this chapter, I think, uh, wraps up really well um, with what we stated the last two weeks. So our mission today as Christians, our main idea, the why are we here, is to share God's loving grace to a lost world for the glory of God because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. Our mission is to share God's loving grace to a lost world for the glory of God because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. So let's go ahead and read these verses, Titus 2, 11 through 15. We'll pray, and then we'll get into the study this morning. The Bible says in verse 11, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. God, we come to you this morning just before we jump into this study, and we ask for your power, we ask for your presence, we ask that you, I ask that you speak through me, you allow me to share the, the thoughts and the truths that you've brought to me in study this week, I pray that you just allow me to share that uh, clearly this morning. God, I pray we leave different than when we came in. God, I pray that we leave here motivated by love, as we, and the reason we're motivated by love is because of the grace that you give us, because of the glory we have in you, and because of what you did on the cross. God, in these next few moments, I pray that you take what's been said and you apply it to our heart and our walk with you. ask this in your name. Amen. So with that, motivated by love, in these five, first four verses, verse 11 through 14, Paul lays out three different motivations uh, to Titus. Three motivations that answer the question of why. Now, the answer to why, in my opinion, is the bigger picture of love. And we're going to see exactly why that's the case when we get to verse 15. But verses 11, 12, 13, and 14 give us three motivations as to why Titus ought to be pouring his heart out in this way and teaching sound doctrine and teaching right behavior. And it starts off, first of off this morning, verses 11 and 12, we see the first motivation that Titus is to be motivated by grace motivated by grace. It says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation 
hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So what is this grace? And if you are with us in the study of Galatians, we spent probably like 32 weeks uh, on this very topic. And so kind of a little bit of a refresher of what grace is, the function of grace. What is grace? Grace is God's undeserved, unmerited favor. Have you ever received something that you did not deserve? If so, that's a picture of grace. When it comes to a relationship with Christ and the eternal salvation that it brings, the Bible tells us that we're sinners. And we deserve a very real place called hell. But because of God's love and because of God's grace, He makes salvation available to each and every one of us. We didn't deserve that salvation, but yet that's what grace is. So with that, grace has two specific functions. Number one, grace saves us and grace teaches us. So grace saves us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, let me pause right there. Aren't you glad it says not of yourselves? Because if I'm honest with myself, I'm not going to be enough to do it. Not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I don't know about you, but growing up, when it came to Christmas time, we didn't have to work for the, the gifts under the Christmas tree. We didn't have to do anything for the gifts that we got on our birthday. They were a gift. They were given to us um, in, in some cases based off of my behavior and the behavior of my siblings. We probably didn't deserve it. But nonetheless, our parents loved us and still gave us gifts as a picture of God's grace. So when we see this phrase in verse 11, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Now, when you first read that verse, you can in the English here, in the King James, you can almost kind of uh, construe the idea of, well, God saves everybody because salvation appears to all men. When you dig deeper into the study, the word appear to all men is basically synonymous with God's grace gives all men the opportunity to salvation. It gives all men the, 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 the it kind of paves the road, but it doesn't make all men saved. Because if it made all men saved, why would have church? Why have anything? Because we're all going to die, we're all going to go to heaven, right? No, so there is a choice, there is a decision where God's grace makes it available, but it brings us salvation as it saves us. But the key here is that it's given all men the opportunity to come to salvation. So that means salvation is offered for all. It doesn't make us inherently saved, but anyone, whosoever, can receive that, that saving grace. Romans 10, 13, one of the Roman road passages, it's so familiar. It starts off with, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. When I was a child, our, our Sunday school teachers and our teachers used to say, hey, place your name in place of the word, whosoever. And so I would write, I would say for, for Daniel, because usually Daniel was the name I heard when I got in trouble instead of Dan. So when I put it in, I was like, for Daniel shall call upon the name of the Lord and shall be saved. The Bible and God's, God is no respecter of persons. Anyone can come to salvation, and that's what grace allows. It, it paves the road. It makes it able. It's the means to where all men can be saved. So that's one function of grace, where it saves us. But the second function this morning in verse 12, grace teaches us. It teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. I love some of those situations where it was in science class 
or it may have been some type of school conversation where you have those cause and effect situations. Well, if this is the cause, then this is the effect. Or if this happens, then this will happen. I look at verse 12 as one of those phrases. The lesson here is what grace teaches us is that if we deny ungodly living, if we deny the lusts of, the, of this world, then we should live sober, righteous, and godly in this present world. Not only does grace transform us in salvation, which we also call justification, but grace also teaches us how to behave in Christ, which is sanctification. So Paul just listed out in the previous 10 verses before we got to verse 11 how to behave as different members and different people groups within the church. And now this is the why behind it. Why should you behave this way? Well, because God already gave us grace, and that grace saves, and that grace teaches. But let me tell you what this grace is teaching us. It's not teaching us that we can just sin willfully. This isn't a fire insurance card. Uh, I shared earlier in the earlier service, I went to several different summer camps growing up, and I remember one camp in particular that we went to in Big Bear, California. There was a couple of different churches that went, and one of the other churches that were there in I can't even remember the name of this church. They used to say this. They used to preach salvation. They used to, and they would say, hey, you need to accept Christ as your Savior. But then they would say, when you accept Christ as your Savior, when you enter into a relationship with Him, all of your sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. I'm like, all right, yeah, that's right. I agree with that so far. But then they would go on to say that because of that, because of God's grace, because of God's power, you can live life today however you want. You could sin, you could do this, you could do that. And I'm like, 12-year-old kid, I'm like, that ain't right. Like, literally, I wanted to yell, blasphemy, you know, or not. No, I didn't do that. I was respectful. Um, but it wasn't right. And then he literally said, it's almost like you have a fire insurance card. You get out of hell and you're, you're free from, from judgment. And I was like, that's not the relationship that God had intended. Now, the truth is, Yes, God's grace and God's blood, God's love is sufficient to cover all sin, past, present, and future. But that doesn't give us cause to just go live life flippantly how we want to. Because if we lived life that way, who's watching us? Who's going to replicate us? Who's going to live life the exact same way in 5, 10, 15 years? Our children, younger families that are here in the church that may watch the way we live. So grace teaches us that it's not, salvation is not just a license to, uh, to live however we choose. If we deny ungodly living and worldly lust, then the result will be sober, righteous, and godly living. But it says at the end of verse 12, in this present world, today, this isn't something to do later. This isn't something to do five years from now. This is something to put into practice today within your home that brings a healthy home, that motivates a healthy church, and then reaches a community in need of a Savior. And so having said that, the function of grace is salvation. The fruit of grace is what it teaches us. As I mentioned earlier, you remember the study in Galatians that we just went through? And now it seems like six years ago, but it was actually like four months ago, where we talked about how the law was a schoolmaster. You remember that? My pastor Aaron preached on that and how, now growing up, when I read the word schoolmaster there in Galatians, I used to think of like a principal, like the law was, uh, the purpose of the law was to teach Israel, was to show us that we were not perfect, <clears throat> we couldn't keep the law, and because of the imperfection, we needed a Savior. 
So when I thought of schoolmaster, I always thought of the principal with the yardstick or the belt or, or, or I, when I went to the principal's office, I didn't have any of those interactions, but I did get suspended, RPC'd. Um, I was a really good kid growing up. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I, got in tr- I got sent home. Funny story. I got sent home for three days on a student suspension because a kid picked a fight with me and I ended the fight and I didn't start the fight. So my dad looks at the principal and goes, just so you know, my son's going to be at home playing video games for the next three days, all because he defended himself. And I was like, it's my dad right there. Great. One of the proudest moments of my life has nothing to do with the message. I just wanted to throw that in there. Um, having said that, though, uh, when, when you think of the schoolmaster, you think of someone that's kind of laying down the law. But when we went through the study of Galatians, we learned that this schoolmaster was more of a tutor, was more of like a, a, a member of the family, an employee of the family that would live in the home that would help um, the children get ready, get dressed, have breakfast, and, and kind of, for lack of a better term, almost like a nanny in a way, to kind of get them off to school, make sure they get there to the rabbinic schools uh, for their lessons. So the law, think of this phrase here, and this was a quote that was shared with me this last week. It says, if the law is the tutor that brings us to Christ, then grace is the parent that brings us up in Christ. Romans 6, 1 and 2 tells us, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead in sin live any longer therein? The Bible says we're not just to sin flippantly. We're not just to sin willingly. We have a relationship with God that grace brings us to him through salvation. And then grace, or excuse me, the law brings us to him, shows us our need of salvation. And then grace is the parent that brings us up in Christ. So we have to be motivated by God's grace because it brings salvation and it teaches us how to live. Secondly, this morning, we need to be motivated by glory, God's glory. Verse 13 says, looking for that blessed hope, and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Have you ever looked forward to something, like really, really bad? Whether it was a, a, a something that was going to come out, maybe it was a cool movie that you wanted to watch, or uh, for me personally right now, in about a little over two weeks, hockey is back. I am like, uh, you have no idea how excited and motivated I am for that. Yes, there's no fans. Yes, I'm not screaming my head off at T-Mobile Arena, um, but I get to watch it on TV. And I'm like, finally, something, you know, you know, that motivates me. Now, you might be looking at me like you're crazy, Pastor Dan. Um, one of the things that motivated my mom growing up, she was an avid reader. She, was, she would read all the time. She would even read like if I or another sibling was driving, she would just sit there and read. She was totally like chill. She wasn't necessarily worried as much about how we drove. Uh, she would read in any time she could. She loved reading certain book series. One in particular, uh, many of you are familiar with it, is the book series called Left Behind by um, Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye. Now, that book series, I believe, was like 12 different books. And when the book came out, my mom bought it day one. She reads it within two days. She kind of has her own little recliner. She, she kind of sits there, and she's got the lamp on. And us kids, we just kind of knew to fend for ourselves those two weeks, uh, or two days, excuse me, because, like, whether, I mean, we found bologna and cheese sandwiches, chicken nuggets, and hot dogs. We were good. We, we, we knew how to survive. The mom would read this book, and she would read it so much, and she'd read it so fast that she'd be done with it, but the publisher wasn't bringing out the next book until eight weeks later. And so... Mom was kind of like, she was excited, she got the book, she'd read it, and then she was kind of discouraged. But I remember several car trips after mom would finish that book. It's the middle of a Sunday or Saturday afternoon. This is before Amazon.com. This is before free two-day shipping. 
This is before you can just go online and buy something. We would drive down to the Christian bookstore. I know it's such a past novel idea at this point. Um, and she would pre-order the next book. And then not only would she pre-order it, she would circle the date. She'd write it down on the calendar. We had calendars on our fridge with all of our duties and chore lists. And there was the date. The next Left Behind book was coming out. Then mom can go to the store and pick it up. And then we kids were like, okay, Friday and Saturday, mom's not going to be here. She's going to be reading. But the thing was, she was excited. She was motivated. She looked forward to that book coming out. I looked forward to something as silly as sports coming out. In this passage, God... Or, or Paul is telling Titus that we are to look for something. We're to look forward to the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. You see, Christ came already, and we'll talk a little bit more about this in the next verse. He came, He died on the cross, and He taught us through grace that grace makes salvation available. Grace teaches us how to live. But now He came, and then He ascended to heaven. Now we get to look back for his return. In Acts chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, when Christ ascended to heaven, it says, and while they, speaking of the disciples, steadfastly, excuse me, while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Usually when I read that in the Bible, it's like, hey, that sounds like angels right there. Two men in white apparel, which also said, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. So the men, these angels tell these men of Galilee, these disciples, these followers of Christ, hey, why are you still staring? Because he just left. But the good news is he's going to come back in a very similar way. You know, today, society and the world can be turned upside down. And as Christians, our behavior ought to emanate the fact that we're looking forward to Christ's return. You know, when Paul wrote this letter to Titus, Paul believed that he thought the, he believed in the imminent return of Christ, that Christ was going to return in his lifetime. We're about 1950 years removed from when Paul wrote this letter to Titus. And even so today, you look at things in the world, I personally am not one that kind of goes, oh, that's prophecy, that's prophecy, or that's prophecy. One of my favorite, uh, I shared this earlier, one of my favorite things I've noticed over the last several weeks in um, social media land, when it comes to a lot of my Christian circle or bubble, is um, post of about coins disappearing, we're on a coin shortage, and we're turning into a cashless society. And I kind of scratch my head a little bit, I'm like, y'all, we've been a cashless society for 30 years. Like, I never carry cash. The only time I carry cash is when I have to go to the bank to deposit it. And I'm just like, oh, this is so extra. Um, but when it comes to that, so I was thinking about that. And so reason I say that is this. We as Christians ought not to look at some of the current events and fret and worry and wonder and kind of push fear. We as Christians ought to look forward and be excited and be motivated that we know the end of the book, we know who's going to win, and we know Christ is coming back. But Pastor Dan... This is happening, that's happening, that's happening. Yeah, but isn't God the same yesterday, today, and forever? Is He still on the throne? Isn't He still in control? And so He is coming back. We have the future hope. We know Christ came. We know what He did. And we know what grace brought in salvation and how to behave. The question this morning is, are you motivated by that glory of His return? Are you looking for Him? It's described here in verse 12 as a, bless, or excuse me, as a verse 13, as a blessed hope. This blessed hope. Are we looking forward to it? Are we excited for that return? And then the, here's, the, here's the honest, tough question. Do others see that we're excited for that return? Do our coworkers that may not know the Lord, do our neighbors 
that know we go to church but maybe not know much about it? Do our close friends know that we're excited for Christ's return? I don't know about you, but I get excited about sports. My mom got excited about books. Nothing should make us more excited than the fact that Christ is going to return and we get to spend eternity with Him forever. We need to be looking forward to that glorious appearing. 2 Peter 3.12, the first part of that verse says, looking for and hasting unto the coming day of God. What's going to be so special about God's return? There's going to be a new heaven. There's going to be a new earth. There's going to be a new body where I can eat whatever I want and not worry about my weight, right? Come on. Um, more importantly, there's going to be eternity, and we get to live in the presence of God. Think about that for a second. Live in the presence of God. I often like pull out my hair and I read stories of the Bible of people that were literally in the presence of Christ and yet didn't believe He was Messiah. They saw the miracles. They saw Him come back from the dead, and yet they still didn't believe. One of the lessons that we've been talking through in student ministry in the life of David, uh, we, David just became the king of the United Kingdom um, and uh, brought the Ark of the Covenant back uh, from uh, captivity of the Philistines for the first time in 70 years. He brings it back to Israel. There were some mistakes on how it got handled, but it finally comes back, and um, David wants to build a temple, wants to build a house, wants to build a church for the Ark, because the Ark of the Covenant in Israel's time frame was the representation of the presence of God with them at that time. And today, you and I don't have an Ark of the Covenant. We don't have a temple. This church building is just a building. We have the church, which is us. And we have the very Word of God to pour into, to read, to meditate, to, to live off of. Uh, chapter 2, as I said the last couple of weeks, could be a huge checklist and I, and, I, and I even confessed as a man, hey, I love checklists where I can go through and, and make sure these things are, are, are part of the process. But verses 1 through 10 could be a checklist on how we ought to live and how we ought to treat others. We ought to be motivated by grace. We ought to be motivated by glory. Verse 14 this morning, we ought to be motivated by the cross. Verse 14 says, Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. I see here the Father's love, specifically in Romans 5, 8, where it tells us that, but God commended His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 14 tells us, Christ, is represented here by the pronoun who, gave Himself for us. Let me ask this question. Did Christ have the ability to not follow the Father's plan and not go to the cross? Yes or no? Did he have that ability? He did. He was God. He could do whatever he wanted. He was all God and he was all man. But yet he knew the Father's plan. He knew the need of redemption. He chose to give himself by obeying the Father. And, and, and this also tells us not only did he give himself, but it shows us that his death was on purpose. There was a reason behind it. It wasn't just some rabbi or teacher who died on a cross and was crucified next to two other thieves. This is the very Son of God because of God's love, because He loved us in spite of our sin. As Romans 5.8 said, even though we were sinners, Christ, God loved us so much that He sent His Son Christ to die on a cross for you and me. But not just for you and me. The people outside these walls, the people in this community. Last two weeks, we've driven home the point that what's at stake? Souls are at stake. We needed to have a healthy family, to have a healthy church, to then reach out into the community and show them the love and the gospel message of Christ. 
But not only in verse 14 did Christ give himself for us, but the purpose behind that gift was that he may redeem us. He may redeem us or pay for, be the propitiation, the atonement for our sins. But it doesn't stop there. Because the one thing that that church that I went to camp with didn't get right when it came to, hey, we're saved, our sins are paid for, woohoo, go party. They didn't read the last half of verse 14 where it says that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people. Peculiar people. Where else in Scripture have we heard of a people group described as God's chosen and peculiar people? What, what nation was that in the Old Testament? Israel, right? Now, I'm not going to spend like 35 sermons right now on is the church the modern-day Israel or not. That was a great debate in Bible college. Make our heads just explode. But can I tell you something? God, when we accept Christ as Savior, do we not become a child of God? Do we not become chosen because of His grace? How it was made available from salvation, we chose to accept that free gift. We too could be labeled as a peculiar people. Salvation is not just about eternity. It's about living for God and having that right relationship today. Because the one thing I've seen in youth ministry for the last 10 years is the way in the home the parents act, the children will replicate. Sometimes for good, other times for bad. And I've seen it over and over and over again, and it's saddening. Why is living for God so important now? Why is Paul saying, hey, this, this, these lessons, here's the reason why. We, we need to be motivated by love, but at the same time, we're motivated by grace, we're motivated by glory, and because of that, we're motivated by the cross and what Christ did. We should live for Him. We should be that peculiar people. And then it says there in verse 14, and purify Himself a peculiar people. And here's a description of those people. Zealous of good works. There's another condition here. There's another obedience-based condition here that not only do we need to be children of God, a peculiar set-apart people, but we ought to be zealous for good works. Now, the Bible's very clear. We already looked at Ephesians 2, 8, 9. We're not saved by good works. But I would say this, that good works is the byproduct and manifestation of salvation that we received because of the grace of God. Does that make sense? It ought to be an external viewpoint that the good works that we're zealous for, that we're looking for, that we ought to help people. We ought to look for opportunities to help and serve. Not just get all comfortable like, oh, I had a busy day today and I'm just going to sit home and chill on the couch and do nothing. Can I tell you something? That doesn't work in my house. I'll probably rest on the couch for like 10 minutes and then my wife so lovingly says, hey, would you mind helping with this? You might help me with that. And then I'm like a jerk of a husband. I'm like, ugh, I'm so tired. It's not a healthy way to have a marriage, so I don't do that all the time. But when it comes to our relationship with God, listen, we can't just do the bare minimum. We have to be looking for opportunities to serve. We have to be looking for opportunities to love on others. And one of the greatest examples I see of this weekend and week out, and you see it too, is Mark Flanagan. I've known Mark for three years. I'm a little upset with him right now because he moved out of my neighborhood and now I don't have a, a great neighbor anymore. Um, no, but what an epitome of someone who is zealous for good works. If you notice on a Sunday morning, he doesn't normally come into the service till about 35 minutes after we start because he's doing a lot of side things out there and getting things ready and working with parking and security and doing stuff with the cafe and serving people. Every time I've asked Mark for help with something, and I'm very hesitant, hey, I can help with this, he's more than above and beyond ready to say, yeah, I'll be there, I'll help you. I don't say that to say, hey, we need to be Mark-like. 
but we need to be Christ-like as Mark is Christ-like because Mark is showing us a great example of what it means to be zealous for good works, being uh, looking for opportunities to love and to care for people. So this grace should motivate us. The glory should motivate us. The cross should motivate us. But why? Why? Can I ask the question, Dad, why? The other day we're sitting at home, and I came home after, I think it was Thursday I came home. We had life groups that night, and um, Kenna had done school. She had got all her stuff done, and she's like playing a game on a phone or a tablet. And there's a few toys laid on the ground, and I think Rachel was doing something in the kitchen. And I said, hey, Kenna, can you help me clean up these toys? Uh, can you pick up those three toys? She picks up one toy, she puts it away, and she's giving me like the, the classic, Ugh. I was like, the only way I, descri- I understand that is because I used to perfect that when I was her age. And then she picks up a second toy. And this is what McKenna says to me. She goes, Dad, um, I just want to let you know, this is the last toy I'm putting away. And then I'm going back to play my game. So have you ever seen the movie Emperor's New Groove where Kronk has like the little angel and the little devil and they're like, go for it, go for it, go for it. At that moment, the little devil Dan on my shoulder was like, get her! Um, and the little angel was like, don't. So I stopped. And I literally realized this is an application for my sermon on Sunday and God's already testing me on it before I get to the pulpit. And, um, and I said, McKenna, I said, you don't tell mom or dad when you stop on something. If we're asking you to do something or we're telling you to do something, you need to obey. And I told her the reason why. I said, because we love you. We want to see you grow. We want to see you love Jesus because Jesus loves you. And so I gave her like, like the script and when I gave her the script, my wife's in the kitchen with her jaw on the floor that I responded in that way and it didn't just like go crazy. Um, but having said that, I had an opportunity to tell my daughter, here's the behavior, here's the reason why, and the ultimate answer to the why was love, was because I want her to grow. Jesus wants us to grow in our spiritual walk. So Kenna gets up from that, she puts away a third toy, she puts away another toy, and then the pride conversation will come later. Hey, Dad, look, I'm putting this other toy away. You know, and so like, I'm like, thank you. But I'll tell you this. <clears throat> there's very few things in this world that bring me more joy than hearing my daughter say, love you. McKenna's five years old. When she was younger, she, it was more like, even before she really understood it, she, I'd say, Ken, I love you, love you. Abby catches it. Abby, love you, love you, Dad, Dad. I love that. When I come home from church, like from the office during the week, you know who comes running to the door? Abby. Love you, Dada. And the dog. <laughs> Just going, ah! You know, um, and Kenna and my wife are, are doing some different things and whatnot, and, but we ought to be motivated by love. Here's what Paul's trying to tell Titus. Because of God's grace bringing salvation and teaching us how to live, because of the glory, we have to look forward to Christ's return. And because of what Christ did on the cross, we ought to love people. Now, verse 15 is a little like a pariah in this chapter. It kind of sticks out on its own because it's a wrap-up verse where Paul is telling Titus specific instructions as to what Titus is to do as a pastor. It says this, These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. You could say this verse is directed to Pastor Aaron. You could say it's directed to me, Pastor Dan. You could say this verse, like Titus, is directed to any pastor of any church anywhere. But just because it may be directed to pastors specifically, can I say that it's still applicable for each and every one of us? Especially as parents, 
especially as mentors, especially as mentees. Last week, I got a text message from someone at church that said, hey, I just want you to know, thank you for driving home that point to get a mentor and a mentee. I set something up with someone. We got lunch set up. It's not who you think I might think it is. And when I saw that text yesterday afternoon or last Sunday afternoon after church, after preaching twice, after being exhausted, I'm like, yes, like I was excited, like the Golden Knights just scored a hat trick. I'm like on fire, like that's what it's about. That's what ought to motivate us. So Paul here is telling Titus, speak. When we speak as pastors, my heartbeat, and I say this because I've been in churches that pastors have gotten this wrong. My heartbeat is that Aaron, myself, and others from this pulpit speak the truth in love. To say, hey, the Bible says this. I love you, but you're doing that. And I want to encourage you to get back to this. Because I have seen pastors say, you need to do that. And it's just like, no, that's not loving. You know, I've, I've been hitting a few times in the head as a kid with the Bible. I needed it, though. Um, but it says, teach these things. Speak. It says in the Bible, in um, Ephesians 4.15, speak the truth in love. So the first command to Titus was to speak. The second command that motivates his love was to exhort, was to edify. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, the, the Bible or the church was set up, and the Bible says here, the church was given some apostles and prophets and evangelists, pastors and teachers. Why? What's the reason for these offices? For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. I want someone, if I'm doing something wrong, to not only tell me I'm doing it wrong, but exhort me to lift me up saying, hey, you can do this. Um, this past week, I shared something last week about um, doing some different homeschool stuff with McKenna, and like she got a lot of stuff done, and she got discouraged when something happened. Um, Tammy Huggins this past week, she sent me like a three-page email with her educational background on how to, to, to like positively encourage your children with the right verbiage to where to like basically you help them understand like, hey, this isn't something that you can't do but it's okay if you don't know the whole thing, so let's work through this step by step. And so when I saw that, I was like, man, this, this is great for educational purposes, but this ought to be great for any type of interpersonal relationship to where we need to reprogram how we think. Why? Because it's so easy to go on Facebook and get on a comment thread and be upset about this thing or that thing and totally not have the Spirit of Christ or that speaking the truth and love mentality in our mindset. And so when we have the ability to teach and speak the truth in love or exhort and edify the purposes for the perfecting of the saints, the Christians, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. The third direction that Paul gave Titus in verse 15 was to speak, was to exhort, and it says, and rebuke with all authority. Rebuke. Did you like being called to the principal's office when you were a kid? No. Unless your principal was weird and gave you a bunch of candy. I had a Sunday school teacher that gave us chill pills if we were acting up in Sunday school. They were Smarties candies, so. but then it actually encouraged us to misbehave more because we knew we were getting candy, so we figured out the system. Um, but when you go to the principal's office, usually you're in trouble. Usually you're, something's about to happen. And whenever someone like an authority, usually <laughs> for me, Pastor Dan, I love you, and then I'm waiting for it, but... You know, like, what, what do I need to hear? Now, when we hear rebuke, when we hear instruction, we can go about it one or two ways. We can humbly receive it, or we can just blow off and go, whatever, I know more than you. Paul here is telling Titus that the love you need to be motivated by through speaking, through exhorting, through rebuking, because it says in Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. 
if someone in this church, whether it's myself or pastor or any other type of deacon or life group leader, whoever it may be, just as a friend, as a Christian, a mentor, mentee, if we see someone doing something that doesn't go with the Word of God, if we don't correct in the right spirit, because we think of the word rebuke, we just like, no, if we don't have the right heart spirit, if we don't correct, we're doing a disservice to you. Over the last several years, I've been here at Oasis. It hasn't been an issue, and thank the Lord it hasn't been. But like Galatia, like the churches in Crete, we haven't had an issue of false teaching coming in. We've stayed true for the most part by the grace of God to the Word of God, for the most part. I can't think of anything that we hadn't gone contrary on. But here's the thing. There are churches that have that issue. There are churches that have those infights. There are churches that have those cliques. There are churches that have issues that come up that split and divide and disunify. And the idea is this is what Paul is trying to teach Titus. Titus, you need to love people. You need to speak the truth. You need to lift them up, but you also need to rebuke them because a true friend is going to tell you how it is. An enemy is going to kiss you, let you go on your way, and then watch you fail, laugh and demise. So the question is, what are you motivated by? Are you motivated by God's grace? Are you motivated by the glory? Are you motivated by Christ? We stated at the beginning of this message, our mission as Christians is to share God's loving grace to a lost world for the glory of God because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. The question is, will you be motivated? And let me end with this. If you read through this entire chapter, chapter 2, you go through these first 10 verses, you see the list. We spent two weeks on 10 verses. It can seem overwhelming. It's a lot to, to take in. It's a lot to digest. It's a lot to put into application in our own lives. Can we do it? Not by ourselves. We need God's help. We need divine help. We cannot do this alone. And this is why that mentor-mentee relationship we talked about the last two weeks is so important. Because you may, you may not have kids in the home anymore, but you may see someone at church who does, and they might need some wisdom, some counsel, some prayer, some just downright love and encouragement. The question is, what is that motivation? Will it motivate us to love? Are we looking forward to Christ coming back? Are we thankful for His grace and what it brings in salvation and how it teaches us to live. Do we think about the cross? Are we motivated by it? Yes, it's overwhelming, but with God's help, we can be motivated by love. We just want to thank you again for joining us today. We pray that the service has been an encouragement and a blessing to you. Here at Oasis, we have a desire to walk alongside of you, to be a partner in your walk with the Lord. So if you have made any decision today, we would love to pray with and celebrate that with you. So will you please take a moment and fill out that connect form or text decision to the number provided below. Oasis is supported by the faithful people like you. So if you have a desire to give to the ministry and mission of Oasis, you can text give to the number provided below. Click on the give link or mail in your gift to the church office. Lastly, we have a desire to pray for you. So if you have a prayer request, you can email us at prayer at oasislv.church. Church, as we continue our study in the book of Titus, I pray that this life-changing grace will drive you to this world-changing action as a passionate follower of Christ.